Hi, welcome to the Iowa Geriatric Association's uh, Education Lecture Series. Um, my name is uh, Kumar Narayanan. I'm an assistant professor in neurology, and I'm going to be talking to you today about cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's disease. This is a disease that's very close to my heart. Every week, I diagnose about five to seven Iowans with Parkinson's disease, and I struggle to manage the motor symptoms, but in most cases, I can do it. But I really struggle to manage the cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And my goal in giving this lecture is to educate you on the cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's disease, what could cause these cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and how we treat these cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's disease. I hope by telling you about the basic mechanisms involved that I can help guide you as new treatments come out. And um, I hope that these new treatments uh, come out soon. I'm actively involved in researching these. Um, and if you're interested in being involved or interested in more information, uh, my name is on the slide. You can look me up and um, send me an email. And I'm happy to talk with anyone who's interested in this difficult problem that's facing our society. So first of all, I don't have any financial interests or uh, any disclosures, um, and I'm not involved currently with any drug companies. Um, so let's start with the disease. Um, and Parkinson's disease is one of those diseases that we think we know a lot about. Um, so formerly, James Parkinson was a surgeon. And about 200 years ago, he noticed that uh, several patients, about six, um, fit a general pattern. Um, and the pattern involved uh, the fact that they were generally slow to move, that they had a tremor, and that they uh, were stiff, and they had difficulty walking. And if you see any number of these patients, a few of them, you will recognize Parkinson's disease in the grocery store and in the library, wherever you go. It's a very striking disease, and it's kind of easy to spot. But this is one of the biases that we have in neurology. It's easy to diagnose someone's movements because all you have to do is look at them. It's much harder to get a sense of how they're thinking because often you have to dis discuss things with them for some time and typically it requires formal testing to identify impairments because our brains are very, very resilient, and very good at compensating. And patients with Parkinson's disease, although they might have cognitive symptoms, can compensate. But the cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's disease are very debilitating. And I hope to convince you that although we think of Parkinson's disease as a disease affecting just a few movements, I think of it as an absolutely systemic disease. I'm not going to use the word dementia because I think that's a loaded word and that has a lot of complexity to it but I hope to be more precise in our approach to the cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's disease. This image was created by Gowers about uh, maybe 80 years later, and it kind of captures the, the cardinal symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and those are resting tremor, 
bradykinesia, slow movements, rigidity, it's basically stiffness, and postural instability, and that means a propensity to fall. And these are the diagnostic criteria we use for Parkinsonism. Parkinson's disease refers to the constellation of symptoms, and progressive neurodegeneration. You can get Parkinsonism from a lot of different causes. For instance, if you were exposed to specific um, antipsychotics, haloperidol, sulpiride, that block a uh, class of dopamine receptors, D2 dopamine receptors, anyone would be Parkinsonian, but that's reversible. But if you have this age-related progressive neurodegeneration, we call that idiopathic Parkinson's disease. It's a very striking pattern. And one thing that's very interesting about Parkinson's disease is that people notice that it affects thinking. There was an Israeli woman, in, uh, uh, Dr. Inzelberg, who noticed that Parkinson's patients developed new capabilities and specifically new creativity. And this is, a, this is an insight, this is a painting by a patient who sort of started to paint after uh, being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and being treated. But I think this is a deep insight about disease. Often people think about a disease as uh, uh, making things worse, as taking something away. But in my clinic, I try to uh, indicate that a disease is more like a journey. And Parkinson's disease, the symptoms, can make that journey more difficult. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to get where you're going to go. And it doesn't mean that your life is somehow less valuable and you're not going to experience a full life. Often, I have patients who have this disease and it changes them. It makes things more meaningful. It makes them appreciate the, the sort of um, you know, things that they previously take for granted. Certainly, I would take for granted. It makes them focus on the things that are important. And in some cases, it makes them, um, it defines their life in a positive way. And they turn out to be connected to other people with Parkinson's disease, to their families, in new ways. And I think that's an important insight and a lesson because all of us, are going to experience challenges, diseases in our lives, and um, we can learn a lot from patients who struggle with a devastating and debilitating neurodegenerative disease. We can help them on their way, and we can learn how they cope, and we can share our experiences with them. So I think that's the biggest lesson about Parkinson's disease, that even though it, it does rob us of our humanity, for our patients and their families and for the community, we should not let that aspect of the disease define the disease. We want to make sure that patients with Parkinson's disease have a full and meaningful life. Um, and that's certainly my goal as a patient. Okay, so just a review of Parkinson's disease. I mentioned the cardinal symptoms of Parkinson's disease, the tremor, the rigidity, the bradykinesia, and the posture instability. But what we're appreciating is that there's a whole host of non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And these are very broad. These include a lack of smell, sleep disturbances, and that's related to cognitive dysfunction, mood disorders, constipation, bladder dysfunction, excess salivation, and orthostatic hypotension. That means that you get lightheaded when you stand up. And I have patients who I can control their movements almost completely. However, they are profoundly debilitated because they cannot stand up. I have patients who I can control their movements almost completely, and they are debilitated because they have to wear a diaper all the time. 
I have patients whose movements are well controlled, but they have new anxiety or psychiatric dysfunction. And if you spend any time at all with a patient with Parkinson's disease, they will complain of one or two or all of these diseases. In terms of statistics, um, cognitive dysfunction is about 30 to 60% of patients with Parkinson's disease. And crucially, most doctors think that, oh, you get Parkinson's disease, and at some point when the disease gets bad, you get demented, and you end up in a nursing home, and you hallucinate, and that's just the way it goes. But if you look at first diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, when they come in their clinic to meet me with a resting tremor or a mild, 30% of those patients have Parkinson's disease. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. One of those stories is a gentleman from sort of the, one of the big cities in Iowa, worked in a large government organization, was very effective, thriving this job. He was in his mid-50s. And he described this very characteristic feeling like, you know, yeah, he was having trouble getting around, but he was really having trouble keeping up with meetings. And his strategy was to use post-it notes. And eventually he would cover his cubicle with post-it notes. And when there was no more room for post notes in his life, and he could not keep up with his post notes, he was fired. Later on, he came to see me about two years later. I diagnosed him with Parkinson's disease, but he had this sort of executive dysfunction. And what that means is he could not remember things for a short period of time. We call that working memory. This is very different than Alzheimer's dementia. That is primarily an amnestic deficit. So patients with Alzheimer's disease have difficulty forming new memories and with long-term memories. But if you talk to them, if you ask them to remember a phone number for a few minutes, often they can do that. They have preserved social reflexes. This is a very different picture in Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease, short-term memory, uh, inhibiting uh, actions, um, constructing uh, sort of uh, visual objects, those are the deficits that you see in Parkinson's disease. It's, again, different than Alzheimer's disease. So 30 to 60% of Parkinson's disease have this type of symptoms at the initial diagnosis, and that predicts later nursing home placement. It predicts morbidity in the disease. It predicts mortality, and it predicts patient and caregiver burden. I'm not going to refer to the mood disorders, but those are another huge problem in Parkinson's disease. Up to 25 to 30% of Parkinson's disease patients have new onset anxiety, and 20 to 30% of patients have new onset depression. And often my patients are not going to complain about those things unless I ask about them, unless I screen about them. Hey, how are you doing? Do you have new anxiety? Do you have new depression? Do you have new sleep disturbances? You've got to ask about them. Otherwise, you know, I would be unlikely to figure it out. So, you know, we're very interested in this uh, because, you know, I can keep patients working, I can keep patients managing their finances, I can keep patients independent, I can keep patients driving if I recognize the executive dysfunction early and do what I can to treat it. So, um, and lastly, sleep disturbances are a huge part of cognitive function. And we're going to go over this, I'll say this again later on, but I can tell you that I have a young daughter and I have two actually, and neither of them like to sleep. And if they don't sleep, boy, am I demented the next morning. The data suggests that if you don't sleep well, you, it's like having several drinks of alcohol. You are impaired. Now, imagine for a second, if you don't sleep for years, if you don't get restful sleep for years, your cognitive function, your cognitive function is going to be impaired. And patients with 
with Parkinson's disease have can have REM sleep disorder, that is acting out their dreams, for decades, decades before they get diagnosed. And the consequences of that are unclear, but often Parkinson's patients might complain that they yell in their dreams or act out their dreams, but they might have uh, disrupted sleep architecture. And we don't know what the consequence of that might be. And if you look, depending on the study, you will see a large percentage of patients with Parkinson's disease have these sleep disturbances. And lastly, let me say that it is true at the end of the disease, many patients with Parkinson's disease have profound cognitive dysfunction, including disordered thinking, hallucinations, executive dysfunction. Now they might also have long-term memory, short-term memory dysfunction, anxiety, and depression. And so for all comers, at some point in their disease, about 80% of Parkinson's patients are going to have some of these cognitive manifestations. And that's an important concept. So if you have these motor dysfunction, you're going to have something that's affecting your thinking at some point in the disease. Typically, you know, the longer you're into the disease, the more likely you are to have one of these things. It's very important for us as physicians, healthcare providers, families, caregivers to recognize that this can be a part of the disease and that recognizing it early might help us identify them and might help us come up with plans to treat them. So uh, this is the slide with uh, um, REM sleep dysfunction is up to 25% of patients. Depression, anxiety, psychosis, and compulsion are 60% of patients and 80% in advanced disease. So this gives us a window, a, a hint of why um, the practice of managing patients with Parkinson's disease is very complex. Um, I view it as a systemic illness. Often, I have trouble finding an organ system that's not affected by Parkinson's disease or by the medication. So, you know, treating the whole patient can make a big difference in this disease. This is just an index of some neuropsychological testing for aficionados. This is one of the original studies by Arslan that suggested that Parkinson's patients were uniformly impaired at the first diagnosis. And that's important because it suggests that uh, when they walk in the door, often the patient with Parkinson's disease might have some cognitive dysfunction and only by diagnosing, only by doing formal testing are we able to pick it up. It's also important because, you know, often the Parkinson's uh, patients are not going to complain. They might, uh, they might be uh, experiencing these deficits and just trying to deal with it and think it's normal aging. And by identifying it, we can help them sort of adapt and cope to the, cope with this, with these illnesses. And my patient with the post-it notes was actually very smart. He came up with just the right strategy to keep working for years. So one thing I wanted to note is that um, Parkinson's patients typically live a little bit shorter than um, uh, patients who, without Parkinson's disease. And, and they live shorter for many reasons. But one of the things that's an idea that we have is that these cognitive might predict the shorter life expectancy. And you know, this is affected by somewhat because the uh, Parkinson's disease is primarily a disease of aging. So at age 60, about 1% of patients have Parkinson's disease, but by 85, about 15% of all 85-year-olds have Parkinson's disease. You know this, and a 95-year-old is not going to move as fast and is not going to have a straight posture, and is going to be more stiff than a 25-year-old. So it's a disease of aging. But not 
being aware of your surroundings at the end of the disease, not being able to move, is going to dramatically predispose you to infection. It's going to dramatically predispose you to um, pneumonia, and other uh, complex uh, sort of illnesses that tend to occur at a greater probability at the end of our lives. And so, you know, understanding that and is may help recognize and help these um, patients um, with greater um, frequency. Okay, so why do patients with Parkinson's disease have cognitive symptoms? So we learn in medical school that a single neurotransmitter, dopamine, is involved in Parkinson's disease. And if you lose neurons deep in the brain, this is a sort of a, what we call a sagittal view, it's halfway through the brain, um, and it's looking right down the midline. And um, so the cortex, which means bark, is on the outside of the brain. And deep in the brain are these projection nuclei. And they are basically broadcast signals. They allow a small percent of your brainstem to modulate the function of your entire brain. So let me give you an example. When you're ready to wake up, right, you need a broadcast signal saying, hey, wake up. And so two neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and serotonin, are involved in that type of broadcast. Um, let's say a lion was to jump in front of you. Most of us would get a little bit scared. So the locus cerealis would release norepinephrine, and boy, would your neurons be take, paying attention to that uh, line. And not only do the neurons in your visual cortex need to be, pay attention to the line, your motor cortex needs to be ready to act, your sensory cortex needs to be ready to go. So this is a way to modulate broad areas of your brain. Um, so these, these neurons typically are located, their cell bodies are in the midbrain or in the puns or in some cases in the medulla, and they send projection fibers all over your brain. Well, dopamine is one of these broadcast systems. And there aren't that many dopamine cell bodies in your brain. There's about 100,000 in the human on either side. And they're located in one or two nuclei. There's the substantia nigra, which contains dopamine, and the ventral tegmentum area that contains dopamine. And if you lose your substantia nigra on one side or the other, you are going to have a Parkinsonian syndrome. So it's a little bit of an artifact. Remember I told you that the movements are what we originally recognized as Parkinson's disease, and the substantia nigra sends dopamine mostly to a part of the brain called the striatum, which I kind of explain, it's kind of in the center of the brain, as the clutch. So if you are driving a stick shift and your gears are not engaged or engaged in the wrong ratio, the car's going to stop and start. So without dopamine, cars are going to start and stop. Your, your body's going to start and stop. But believe it or not, Parkinson's disease affects all of these nuclei. It is true that the substantia nigra is probably most affected. But if you look in the nearby ventral tegmental area, which you'll notice here sends projections to your cortex, to your thinking area, that's affected also in Parkinson's disease. And uh, we don't know if this is the case, but certainly this would be sufficient to explain some of the mood symptoms of Parkinson's disease, the anxiety, the psychosis, the psychosis means disordered thinking, and the depression. Some neurons nearby in a part of the brain called the basal forebrain, which means at the bottom of the forebrain, contain the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. 
Acetylcholine also projects all over the cortex and helps fluid cognition. It means it helps the cortex function at the right level. There are diversities of acetylcholine receptors. You know them because every time someone smokes, it binds to one of these receptors. These are nicotinic receptors. There's also muscarinic acetylcholine receptors, and there's, a, there's many, many different types of subunits, and they have all kinds of signaling mechanisms. Um, there's also acetylcholine receptors in your heart and in your peripheral nervous system. And if you were to take too much of um, sort of the, uh, there's various pesticides that poison these that are called organophosphates. But this is a very important neurotransmitter in your brain, and it's again one of these projection nuclei. And it turns out that about the same number of acetylcholine neurons die in Parkinson's disease as they do in Alzheimer's disease. So a lot. The norepinephrine nuclei are right next to the dopamine uh, nuclei uh, in the sort of pons and in the, in the bottom of the midbrain. They also project and they also degenerate. The norepinephrine neurons, another word for norepinephrine is just adrenaline. And this alerting and or, or orienting response telling you what's important are, is also blunted. And lastly, serotonin neurons are also affected by Parkinson's disease. So, you know, we don't really know why dopamine neurons are sensitive. We think that it might be something to do with the machinery of making dopamine. Dopamine is kind of an exotic neurotransmitter and it requires uh, free radicals. But, you know, one of the things, if you remember, I told you that Parkinson's disease is a disease of aging. And if you're pumping out, if you're a neuron, you know, this dopamine neurons, you know, in my patient, 60, 70, 80 years old, it is a tremendous feat of cell biology to continuously make and manage this toxic protein for decades, for almost a century. And another thing that we notice is if you look in the cell bodies of um, these, these uh, Parkinson's patients, if you look, there are these intracellular inclusions. And basically, the inclusions are filled with garbage. I kid you not, garbage. The garbage is uh, the, a cell, anytime it makes something, it has to generate a garbage production pathway, and it's called ubiquitin. And the other thing is a sort of a, a, a molecule that helps stabilize the excretion of garbage, synuclein. So these proteins tend to build up in these, uh, in, all over the brain. If you look at anybody's brain, You'll, and whose age you will see synuclein. But you see synuclein in about 90% of patients with Parkinson's disease in the midbrain. And, you know, we don't know why these cells all of a sudden kind of aggregate this garbage. There are some very almost voodoo neuroscience theories. Um, you know, think about, uh, 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 you know, think about your high school. You know, like if you're in a high school and, you know, there's kids being kids, but all of a sudden someone, someone shows up who's a bad actor. Maybe someone who's smoking in the back of the class, wearing leather jackets, and you know, you know the type. All of a sudden, other kids are smoking and wearing leather jackets. So, synuclein is one of these proteins. If it's in the right state, it can be, you know, functioning, helping dispose of neurotransmitters, helping dispose of garbage. But if it's in the wrong state, it can induce other proteins of synuclein to be in the wrong state. So, this is a a mechanism called a prion mechanism. So bad protein folding leads to more bad protein, uh, protein folding. This is originally appreciated in a disease called Creutzfeldt-Jakob syndrome or 
very rare neurodegenerative diseases where bad proteins led to other bad proteins. Mad cow disease is one of these. But this principle may be important in thinking about um, dementia as a whole. So Alzheimer's disease is maybe bad protein folding of, the, of a protein called amyloid and tau. And Parkinson's disease is bad protein folding of a protein called synuclein. And if you look in the gut of patients with Parkinson's disease, sometimes you'll find synuclein. And there's an investigator named Heiko Brock who believes that synuclein spreads over the nervous system. And when it spreads to your cortex, that's when you get cognitive symptoms. So let's review the big theories on why patients with Parkinson's disease get cognitive dysfunction. And remember, the cognitive dysfunction is not memory, long-term memory. It's short-term memory. It's not like Alzheimer's disease where you don't know who you are, you get lost, you forget your keys. Rather, it's, I can't remember a phone number. I can't manage my finances. I can't do math. That's early in the disease. Also, remember, Parkinson's patients get anxiety, depression, and they get sleep disorders with greater frequency. So that's, that's the cognitive syndrome in Parkinson's disease. So four big theories. One, there's toxic proteins that end up in the cortex. Two, um, there's a loss of acetylcholine. I've told you acetylcholine projects all over the brain. Three, there could be loss of dopamine in the ventral tegmental area. If you remember, that's the area that projects to the cortex that also has uh, dopamine. And four, it could be that there's just like there's a clutch for movement, there's a clutch for thinking. So the clutch for thinking, the cognitive stridum, there's dysfunction there. So these are four broad theories. There are many other theories, but these are, the, to my mind, some of the biggest um, contenders. And let's kind of look at some evidence. I'm sorry to torture you with evidence. One difficulty is if you look at the brains of patients with Parkinson's disease, and this is work from the University of Washington, um, there's uh, NFTs, neurofibrillar tangle, and Lewy bodies are the Lewy bodies that have synuclein. And... SP, I believe, is uh, uh, related to amyloid. So if you look at these scores, PD is patients with Parkinson's disease, PDD is patients with Parkinson's disease, dementia. And as I told you, I think dementia is a bad term, but these patients have cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So they argue that there is some clustering, meaning patients with P PDD, the black circles, tend to have greater amyloid burdens, they have SP, that's the SP score, and they have, and, but they all have Lewy bodies and not tanks. But when I look at this data, I see that if you, if I knew what your level of amyloid was, I, you know, and I don't know that the patients with the PDD, I don't know which patients are worse, I can't tell what you've got. You, some patients with high amyloid, so if you have high amyloid, it's true, you're going to be demented, but there are lots of patients with PDD that don't have um, uh, hi. Look at all those patients on the bottom. So uh, I'm not, I'm a little bit frustrated because it doesn't help me very much. And if I know what your Lewy body score is in your cortex, I'm not sure what that means. There's patients who have PDD who have high Lewy bodies and there's patients who don't have high PDD. So I think that toxic proteins don't really help you. And if it looks, uh, if you look down, they derive predictive values of 74% and 86% but it's all on a continuum. And the thing that they're not telling you is if you go out and you get a PhD, or if you, get, uh, if you educate yourself, or if you learn Latin, you might, you might have a lot of these things, 
in your brain, but you might be you might not have any symptoms. So clearly, there's a concept of resilience. There's a concept concept of cognitive reserve, and you can adapt to even having these toxic proteins aggregate in your brain. How does that work? We're not quite sure, but you should all go out and learn a different language and learn a new skill. This is another piece of evidence, and I apologize, I'm torturing you with raw evidence, but in my line of work, there is only evidence, and it's helpful to see how dirty the evidence is, because often, you know, in medicine, people come to physicians and they want clean answers, but we are reasoning beyond evidence, so we have to interpret this evidence, and we have to help you think about it. And if we speak in absolutes, it's because we are trying to make it simple. But the data always are complex, and so I think it's useful to illustrate. So I'm sorry to torture you for the data. I'm going to do it anyway. So patients with Parkinson's disease who don't have dementia tend to have intermediate scores. This is the percentage reduction in acetylcholine esterase, which is an enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. But if you look down in the frontal cortex, these authors argue that the patients with Parkinson's dementia have decreased estrocholinesterase. Now, this study was done in 2003, before the finer points of neuropsychology testing for patients with Parkinson's disease were appreciated. So, potentially, you know, this could be one way, and you could use this as a test to see if someone with Parkinson's disease had dementia. And it implicates a neurotransmitter system. So this is one piece of evidence, and honestly, it's one of the most convincing pieces of evidence that's out there. And one insight is that there's a drug called rivastigmine, and this drug blocks estocholine. And if you give it to Parkinson's patients or patients with Lewy body dementia patients, they get better. They don't get that much better, so that's this is an ADAS cog, which is a measure of cognition. And you can see if you give patients rivastigmine and you wait, they typically get better and they don't degenerate as much. So here's the placebo patient. Over 16 weeks, they don't degenerate, but at 24 weeks, they get worse. But the Parkinson's patients at 24 weeks and 16 weeks get better and their line is flat. Now, the study didn't necessarily take it out, but this is important and this is different than Alzheimer's disease. In Alzheimer's disease, if you use this drug, you don't make patients better. You just make patients less likely to decline over a six-month window. So in Parkinson's patients and in Lewy body patients, you can actually make patients better. And that's important because this gives it, this is an opportunity for us to make an intervention in this disease. Recognizing this can be helpful because I have patients who were about to quit their jobs. And incidentally, some of these were young patients in their 30s and 40s. And giving them this drug made a big difference. So one issue, though, of course, with every drug, there's a, there's a downside. This drug tends to induce nausea in about 10 to 15% of patients. We can sometimes use a patch. It can sometimes be effective. But this is the state of the art. This is the best thing we can do for patients. We know that they don't have enough acetylcholine, and we can treat them with this drug, Revastigmine. It's very exciting. Potentially, we can use other drugs um, that work on this mechanism to maybe do, the, do it better. And unfortunately for us, um, uh, other drugs for Alzheimer's disease, which aren't very good anyway, drugs called memantine, uh, galantamine, are not effective for Parkinson's disease. And um, if you've been following literature, there's a whole bunch of trials with 
sort of immunotherapy to take away the toxic proteins. And those haven't worked for Alzheimer's disease, although I don't think any of them, the data is not out for Parkinson's disease yet. One thing that um, we also notice is that um, patients with Parkinson's disease also have all these other cholinergic signs, gastrointestinal signs, urologic signs, and that could be evidence that acetylcholine is the key drug. So one thing that we noticed is that patients with Parkinson's disease, and this is work from um, UCSF, have less activity in thinking areas during memory tasks. And these areas get dopamine from the ventral tegmental area. And the common literature, which you're taught in textbooks, is the ventral tegmental area. This is the area that presents dopamine in the cortex, is not involved. But if you go back and look at the pathological literature, the VTA is absolutely involved. It does lose cells less than the substantia nigra, but it's involved. Um, these are the A10 cells for aficionados here on the right. And you can see that some patients were not involved. Some patients have cell loss, or you can use the mouse here to point it out. Some patients have cell loss, and some patients don't. If you remember back, not every patient with Parkinson's disease had cognitive symptoms. And my hypothesis would be that it's these patients that have cognitive symptoms, and these patients don't. That's an open question, and if you want to get involved in research, you can send me an email. We can try to figure out a way to do that. We can look at the patients who have passed away and try to correlate their clinical function with these patients. Um, but I have lots of ideas about how to test this idea. And if you look in um, areas that get uh, VTA dopamine, the Parkinson's patients with executive dysfunction tend to have less dopamine in the, in the frontal cortex, the areas that control cognitive um, function. So that's evidence for that hypothesis. And one other thing that I need to point out is a lot of people think that Parkinson's disease and the disease itself doesn't produce cognition, cognitive problems, but the drugs do. And this can, to some extent, be true. So levodopa, which is the biggest treatment for Parkinson's disease, is dopamine. And dopamine is related to a lot of compounds that you're familiar with that cause all sorts of cognitive problems. These are drugs like amphetamine, which increases dopamine, and cocaine, which increases dopamine. Amphetamine and cocaine block reuptake of dopamine at various synapses. Levodopa is essentially you're giving your body dopamine. Incidentally, you have to give your body carbidopa and levodopa to get to your central nervous system because those two drugs are the right combination to confuse your peripheral nervous system not to take up dopamine and to get the dopamine into your central nervous system. So, but sometimes patients use levodopa compulsively and they, get, and they have high doses of levodopa and they can develop compulsive behaviors. And these are things like gambling, binge eating, compulsive shopping, odd sexual behaviors, or punding. And punding is a name, organizing things in a row, putting things in order, playing with your paper clips. These are compulsive behaviors. So certainly these drugs can predispose you to that type of behavior. In addition, these drugs can also uh, predispose you to psychosis. So this is a study of PDP, Parkinson's disease-related uh, psychosis, and the levodopa-induced dosage was an independent risk factor for psychosis. Another other things that I want to point out is if you have a, if you have decreases on your ADLs, that's your activity state of living, you have risk. If you have a frank diagnosis of dementia, you have a risk of having psychosis. Psychosis is another word for disordered thought and hallucinations. Or if you have uh, if you have a your levodopa dose is weakly related. And if you have sleep disorders, REM 
behavioral disorders, you also have a marked risk of having psychosis. And hallucinations are tricky because, you know, you kind of dream, I mean, all of us hallucinate every single night when we dream. So we have this circuitry of interpreting the visual world and having a sensory experience that isn't actually happening to us. All of us have the capacity to imagine. Parkinson's patients have a type of hallucination that's very vivid. So a couple, they have a couple types. So they have what's called hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucination. So as you're going to sleep, often, because I told you that their sleep architecture is fragmented, they will have an experience of dreaming while awake. So that, 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 that type of hallucination. They also type of, have a type of hallucination called what we call peduncular hallucinations small items on the periphery of your vision. So typically, school children, aliens, small animals, we've all had these. We look to the side of our periphery. Well, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's indicated that I'm, I'm out there. But, you know, you've, you've all looked to the side. Is that really there? So patients will typically look at these things and think, is that really there? And often, they're not there. But with the disease, sometimes they actually see them. And sometimes these hallucinations can bloom in fully-fledged sensory experiences that aren't there, essentially a waking dream. This can be very vivid, very difficult to control. Yeah, we can control them, but they're sort of um, important to recognize and important to uh, know that they're there, and we like to control the risk factors. So if we can control the sleep disorders, maybe we can control the psychosis. So. The drugs can contribute. It's important to know the drugs are there and what they're doing. Um, but, you know, often patients who start hallucinating, I have all, I, all the time I see patients who um, are, maybe they come in for surgery and, and after the surgery they wake up and they have this sort of abnormal waking up because of the hypnopompic hallucination and everyone freaks out and stops the levodopa. That's a terrible thing to do because all of a sudden you take away a drug that the patient needs, stop the drug, and that's going to cause a massive decompensation. It's going to increase the risk of um, dopamine withdrawal syndromes as well as um, uh, sort of a, all sorts of crises caused by dramatic change in your dopamine, including crises in blood pressure and heart rate. So don't do that. Another scenario is a Parkinson's patient comes to the hospital hallucinating and the, uh, you know, the hospital team, because they have not experience with Parkinson's, stop their medication thinks, oh, the drugs are causing hallucination. And then they notice that the patient has an infection, a urinary tract infection and or a, um, you know, maybe a pneumonia or some other trigger. So in that case, the hallucination was really a symptom because Parkinson's patients have this sort of limited ability of cognitive function. The symptoms are triggered by this sort of event. In that case, stopping the medication was the wrong thing to do because, again, you precipitate this incredible crisis of withdrawing dopamine in terms of blood pressure, heart rate, motor function. You make the patient frozen and miserable, essentially. A patient goes from moving around to rigid. And the underlying cause was not the levodopa. It was, in fact, the infection. So treating the infection will, will reverse the hallucinations. That's an important thing to read. So it, there's very few reasons to take a patient who's functioning well on the levodopa, carbidopa levodopa, and stop the medications.
So the drugs, though, that are the biggest offenders are drugs Rupinerol and Pramipexol, um, Bromocryptine, and Rotigem. That's the patch. Those drugs do produce hallucinations on their own. So if a patient comes to my clinic or gives us a call and says, hey, I'm seeing things, and it's not, I'll, I'll stop that medication. And I'll stop it over a couple of days, but I'll stop it. So typically, if a patient comes to us and uh, has complaints of these symptoms, the well, first thing we'll do is we'll check them for infection. And the next thing we'll do is uh, we'll slowly try to get them off their dopamine agonists, Rupinerol, Pramipexol, Nupro. And then we'll slowly walk back to levodopa and see if that's contributing at all. And I've actually never had a case where levodopa was a prime driver of hallucinations, although it's weakly associated with it. Often it's a precipitating fat sign. Okay, so this is my big theory, but there are many others. So Parkinson's patients have what we call mild cognitive impairment. You might call it dementia, but I don't like to use that word. Typically, they have an executive impairment caused, and that's executive impairment or executive functions such as memory, planning, inhibition. That's their deficit early in the disease. And it might be a there's contribution from decreased dopamine, prefrontal cortex, or decreased estrocholine. This is different than on over here, the tau amyloid picture, where tau and amyloid build up in the medial temporal lobe and lead to a memory impairment. One thing to remember is that Parkinson's patients, I told you, is 1% over 60, 15% over 85. Alzheimer's disease is also disease of aging. So there are patients out there who have both. The patients who have memory impairments and executive impairments might have both tau and amyloid building up, as well as, as, well as aflacinuclein. They might have dopamine dysfunction as well as acetylcholine, and their medial temporal lobe, the area that forms memories, might be dysfunctional. So it's important to think about my patient with Parkinson's disease who has dementia might have both processes going on. And obviously, right now, in 2015, when this video is recorded, you know, we have apps that drive us around and we have all kinds of technology, but we don't have treatments for these diseases. So it's a frustrating because we think we know it's wrong, but we don't have specific treatments. But hopefully, understanding the basic mechanism that's going on is going to help us identify and recognize these treatments as they come down the pike. Okay, so. Let's talk about how I approach treatment. And again, Parkinson's disease is a frustrating, neurodegenerative, irreversible, inexorable condition. You can't change the course of the disease. But there's a quote by Joe Lewis, who's a famous boxer, and at the end of his career, people asked him, well, what do you think of your career? And he said, I did the best I could with what I got. And that's what we're going to do with the treatment. And that's what we're going to ask our patients to do. So the first thing, diagnosis. So if acute, meaning it happens quickly, I typically ask patients, I want patients to have their delirium worked up. So I want blood test studies, I want a urinalysis, I want a chest x-ray, I want to check deep brain stimulation leads, and I want to make sure that there's no sign of an infection. If it's happening suddenly over a couple days, I'm really concerned about infection. I'm not concerned about medications. And you got to ask questions about cognition. And typically, the way we evaluate cognition is in the mini mental status, which is not very good for Parkinson's disease. What's better is a, a screening test called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA. So that's what we like to do uh, and get a clear picture of do they have cognitive function. 
the mocha I can do in about five minutes in my clinic, but sometimes I need very detailed information. I will do a formal referral to neuropsychology. They're very helpful diagnosing this. I'll ask questions about sleep, questions like, do you punch anyone in bed? Do you ever wake up screaming? Do you have daytime sleepiness? And I'll ask questions about, do you manage your finances? Do you need trouble paying your bills? Can you dress yourself? Can you feed yourself? Did you quit your job? Have you had hallucinations? And I'll ask these questions. And then I'll ask about compulsive behaviors. So typically patients who go out and gamble or have new behaviors or odd behaviors won't tell you about them until they, until you ask. So it's really important to think about them in your process of evaluating patients. So, you know, we don't have any tests for Parkinson's disease at all clinically. Uh, our exam is as good as we can do. Some things that can be helpful are pre-Tesla or detailed MRI, and that enables me to look in detail at the brainstem. Another thing that can be helpful is to do a sleep study. So a sleep study can be useful in figuring out, well, do you, uh, do you have, are you have sleep disorder? Do you have restless leg syndrome and that's keeping you awake? Do you have sleep disorder and, are you have sleep disorder and uh, restless leg syndrome? Do you have sleep apnea? Sleep apnea is massively undertreated. Maybe you don't have some Parkinson's disease. Finally, I mentioned this earlier, neuropsychology testing can be really helpful. It can be helpful at grading cognition. It can be helpful giving you cover, because if you have a patient who has executive dysfunction, who can't remember things, they, don't, you, they can't be driving. You don't want them driving. And it's helpful to have formal testing and saying, look, this predicts you're going to get an accident. Um, incidentally, I never take away people's license. Typically, by involving patients and family, you know, everyone wants to live as long as possible. And the quickest way to die is to drive down the interstate at 80 miles an hour. And um, if you do that and you have a limited short-term memory and limited visual function, it's very high-risk behavior. It doesn't take long to convince patients of that. And typically, a psychiatrist can be really, really helpful. Now, a psychiatrist is a specialist in those neurotransmitter systems I mentioned, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine. And frankly, as a neurologist, I'm not. And it's useful to have a psychiatrist who's really tuned to the fine balance of these neurotransmitters to help you coming with the right drug for that patient. So I can't stress the value of, of talking with a psychiatrist about the medical management of the patient. So the things that can be helpful for sleep, typically I try something like melatonin, and then I really, I try things like warm milk, hot shower, I ask patients to take their technology out of the room, blackout curtains, I call it sleep hygiene. If that doesn't work, I will try a nocturnal dopamine agonist, something like Ruperol or Pramipexol. Some of those drugs have side effects that cause sleep. If that doesn't work, I might try nocturnal levodopa because some patients can't sleep or they wake up and they're frozen or they can't go to sleep. No. If you, someone put you in a um, sort of cast and asks you to go back to sleep, it's difficult. So sometimes nocturnal levodopa can help. Sometimes a medication called gabapentin can be very helpful for uh, restless leg syndrome or the creepy crawly feeling that you get during sleep. There's a disorder that goes with Parkinson's disease, a profound inner restlessness called akathisia, and that can also prevent patients from going to sleep. So typically, if those don't work, I'll do a sleep study, and I'm looking to make sure that they don't have any airway dysfunction. If they don't, then I'll give them a very powerful sleeping pill called clonazepam. It's a benzodiazepine. It's related to Ativan and midazolam, but crucially, clonazepam is a long half-life, so it's very hard to get that big hit of sort of the anxiety relief from clonazepam. And yeah, you develop tolerance to it, but it's very hard to sort of 
withdraw from it in the same way that you do with, with lorazepam and midazolam. Now, you can certainly have clonazepam induced withdrawal and seizures. It's like a little bit like having you know, a long-acting alcoholic drink, but it can be very helpful in organizing sleep. So I will use it with great effect in some of my patients that are appropriate. So for depression and anxiety, I'll screen my patients. I'll refer them to psychiatry. I have a very low threshold to use an SSRI or an SNRI. These are your Prozac, Fluoxetine, those are your SSRI, something like Celexa, Esitalopram, Mercitalopram, Lexapro, um, Wellbutrin um, are all very helpful. And there's good evidence that they're helpful in Parkinson's disease. Crucially, there's a medication called resagiline Aslect. That's an MAOB inhibitor for Parkinson's disease. And these drugs can interact with Aslect. So you have to screen for that. There have been very few case reports of interactions between Celexa, which is the drug I use most heavily, and Aslect. But you have to think about that um, when you prescribe these medications and also whether they can be at risk for something called serotonin syndrome. So if you poison all their ability to reuptake serotonin, it can really cause a buildup in the synapse. And um, the signs of serotonin syndrome are high temperature and muscle pains. It can be very dangerous. So it's useful to screen for that. There's almost no role for a medication like Xanax or Ativan. That's um, alprazolam or lorazepam in Parkinson's disease-related anxiety. Um, typically, that's the first drug that a lot of physicians reach for. But um, with the, these drugs do not treat anxiety. In fact, they're like the devil's bargain. They treat anxiety for a period of time, but often, three weeks after starting these medications, there'll be even more anxiety, um, and they develop rapid tolerance. So they're a short-term fix, and they actually make the problem worse overall. So if you're going to use alprazolam, you uh, likely should do it with a psychiatrist's help. And if you see a patient on alprazolam, Xanax, it's something to think about. That's one of the first drugs that I would try to reduce. As I said, uh, for cognitive dysfunction, the only drug we've got is rivastigmine. Denazepil had, was tried to had too many side effects. Memantine was not effective. And cognitive rehabilitation can be very helpful. For it. So learning a new skill, learning a new therapy can be very helpful. Now, I know and a lot of you guys aren't physicians, but clearly you're in healthcare fields and you see these drugs, so it's useful to think about how they work and what's going on in your patient. At least, I think so. So finally, let me mention the future. So right now, we have dysfunctional neural circuits that lead to cognitive dysfunction, and we sometimes give drugs, we give cognitive therapies, but they're outside the brain, and it's hard to get them targeted to the right therapy. We also do brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, but that's only effective towards movements. In the future, I imagine an era when we treat symptoms very, very specifically. One way to do, do that is adaptive brain stimulation, where we use brain stimulation that adapts to patient's dysfunction, and we localize that in, in patients with cognitive dysfunction, and we treat that uh, very specifically. Now, it might be a little bit scary to think, oh my god, do I want stimulation leads? Do I want to be remote control? Um, do I want to uh, have this sort of very invasive procedure? But you have to remember that my patients are very, very, very debilitated. These patients are profound, their lives are devastated, and their lives are falling apart because they're hallucinating because they can't think straight. So I'm hopeful that one of these therapies can really make a difference in the lives of my patients and sort of give them back years of meaningful life. And that's something that we work actively on. I'd like to thank you very much. Unfortunately, you can ask questions, but I won't be able to hear you. But I encourage you to connect with me. Let me know you heard the... Are 
lecture online, and, um, and I look forward to continuing the discussion with you. Thank you very much.